W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast, the place where health and consciousness connect perfectly, perfectly healthy, healthy and tone, tone radio, radio, radio with your host, Darren McDuffie. And now prepare to get fat. What's cracking peeps out there? Darren McDuffie here, alias Fat Man, because I help you become perfectly healthy and toned and conscious, of course. And you're listening to Perfectly Healthy and Toned Radio, brought to you by PerfectlyHealthyandToned.com. Today's episode is number 160 with Dr. Ken Berry, entitled Lies My Doctor Told Me. Before getting into more about that episode, I want to give you a reminder of the previous episode I did with Morley Robbins, entitled Getting Off the Ferris Field. If you are someone out there who does know a lot about iron, but less about copper, I advise you or encourage you rather to go back and listen to the episode. Morley drops a lot of truth bombs in regards to why we need less iron and more copper within the body. Really good episode, episode that a lot of people are paying attention to. So again, I encourage you to go back and listen. Today's episode is, again, Lies My Doctor Told Me by Dr. Ken Berry by a medical doctor. Very entertaining guest, and you are going to really love listening to Dr. Barry. I know that I did, and he gives a lot of great things on the podcast that you should look for when you are looking to transition to a new doctor or you are really going to start visiting a new doctor. I know sometimes we move to different states and we're looking for another medical doctor. And one of the things I think that happens with a lot of people is that when they encounter a medical doctor that really is not doing the things or is really not open-minded, they tend to stick with that medical doctor. But Dr. Barry is wide open on this podcast, if I can use that word, and he gives a great deal of detail and some advice for those of you out there who are looking at changing doctors or going to see some sort of a specialist. So without further ado, let's get into Dr. Ken Barry's bio. Dr. Bear is a family physician, speaker, and author based near Nashville, Tennessee. He received a Bachelor of Science degree with honors in animal biology and psychology from Middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro, Tennessee in 1996. He received his MD from the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, Tennessee in 2000. Dr. Barry has been practicing family medicine in rural Tennessee for over a decade. He is board certified in family medicine and has been awarded a degree of fellow by the American Academy of Family Physicians. Coming up on episode 160 with Dr. Ken Barry, lies my doctor told me, here is what you are going to learn. Why did Dr. Barry recommend Weight Watchers? Really funny story here, and you will hear the story, and you'll also hear how he turned it around, how he got more nutritional knowledge. The next thing is, when is it time to switch doctors? I know a lot of you out there who might be listening to the podcast or really coming up with different ideas. You're coming up with new perspectives on your health. And a lot of times when you go in to visit your doctor and you may bring some new information in there and your doctor may shut you down. So Dr. Barry gives some insight on when is it time for you to switch doctors and go start seeing someone else. The next thing is why do doctors die before their patients? You would think that doctors are the healthiest people on the earth, but many doctors die before their patients. And Dr. Barry and I discussed this on this podcast. The last couple of things are just concepts that Dr. Barry covers in his book. And as I was reading the book and preparing for the interview, I found myself shaking my head numerous times. So on this podcast, we go over a lot of these concepts and some of them are 
if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. The next one is association isn't causation. And the last one is if you tell a lie long enough, people will believe it. And those are some of the things that we go over on this podcast. And I would urge you to pay attention to a lot of those concepts because I think those concepts go over not only seeing a medical professional, but they can go over some of the things that we're seeing on a day-to-day basis. So pay attention, listen up, lots to learn on this podcast. I found myself learning a lot as I spoke to Dr. Barry as well. Before we get into the podcast, just wanted to give you a quick short reminder about iTunes reviews. If you haven't left a review on the podcast, please do me a favor and leave an iTunes review. All you have to do is go to iTunes, sign in, leave your review, and that helps me out tremendously to get the podcast to other people like you. And there's a lot of good episodes come up. And also want to remind you about the Somaderm Homeopathic HGH Gel. I just started talking about this on the last podcast and I've gotten a lot of good results with this and I've seen so many tremendous results with people and that's why I got behind the product. But go to longevitygel.com if you want to learn more. Longevitygel.com to learn more about this HGH homeopathic gel that's helping out a lot of people. Now, let's get into the podcast. Dr. Barry, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you tonight? Hey, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being on and I really enjoyed your book, Lies My Doctor Told Me. And my obligatory question to everyone when they come on my show is how did they get involved in health? But I guess I'm going to have to rephrase that and, and ask you, how did you start or want to become a doctor? Well, as early as I can remember, I had wanted to be a doctor and I actually took a rather circuitous route to get there because when I entered puberty, I started having severe migraine headaches. And looking back now, it was almost assuredly my diet, but I didn't think I was gonna be able to put in the long hours and lose all the sleep of being a doctor because of those migraine headaches. So I'd actually went ahead with plan B, which was was business administration, right? Yawn. But when I got to college, I kind of grew out of the migraines. And so medicine was back on the table. So I immediately, bumped up the grades a notch, and here we are. So you started out becoming a doctor, and what I've noticed is our backgrounds are pretty similar. And one thing that I want to kind of commend you on is the fact that you were doing this while you had a family, so to speak. So it's, man, I don't know how you, I, I found it hard in college to juggle basketball and studying and all that stuff, so I can imagine you being able to do all this, the rigorous studying that it, that involves medical and also having a family. How did you do that? Well, it was a, it was a juggling act, no doubt, but it was a terrible juggling act. It, it's really impossible to be a good medical student and be a good husband and be a good dad. And so I, I faltered. I tripped and fell many, many times. I missed family events, but basically in medical school, it's uh, root hog or die, as the, as we say in the South. There is no, you know, there is no, oh, well, you know, my daughter had a birthday party. And so you do what you got to do to get through and then you try to make up for it later. So, like I said, we saw some similarities. You played sports in high school, basketball and football, I believe. And I, I ended up playing one year of football in middle school. And then I started this growth spurt and I said, you know what? It's best for me yeah. to stick with basketball. Oh, yeah. But I noticed, too, with you after you stopped playing sports, 
you started to gain weight. And I guess that was during your, your time of your residency in medical school. And that's that happened to me as well. After I quit playing sports, I ended up gaining a, a lot of weight. What made you decide to start losing the weight? Well, the weight gain started when I was in my mid-30s. And I was I was in my last year of residency and starting my practice. And uh, I just started gaining weight. You know, about the 30s, the hormones start to shift. And then I was just eating the, the most rotten diet you can imagine. And then I was doing a lot of emergency department shifts. And so I would work many, many times from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. in the emergency room. And then I'd be ready to go in the clinic at 8.30 and see a full book of patients all day long. And so there were many weeks where I would sleep every other night. And you can imagine what that was doing to my cortisol. And then I had this crap diet going on, and I started gaining weight. And, you know, the first 10, 15 pounds just made me, because I've always been very, very slender, and so I was kind of happy about the first 10 or 15. But when it kept going, I was not happy with that at all. And at my heaviest, I was almost to 300 pounds. At my heaviest, I remember I was at my grandmother's house, and she had one of those really old floor scales in her bathroom. It was always a, a tradition. You go to Granny's house, you have to get on the scale, right? She wanted right. to see how bigger people would get, right? And so I got on the scale, and it only went to 250. And I hadn't been on the scale. I was busy. I didn't have time to, to weigh and check blood pressures on me. I was doing that to everybody else. And so I got on her scale, and it went past 250 and kept going. And it said that I weighed 47 pounds, which if you do the math, that's 297 pounds. And my grandmother was just, she had never seen her scale do that. And she probably had to think 20 years, you know. And she had to get down there, and she made me get off and get back on. She's, and she had to do the math. And, man, then I didn't hear the end of it after that. And so growing up in the family that I grew up in and, and in the kind of the, the area of the country I grew up in, it's kind of a show me kind of attitude. You know, don't tell me, show me. And so I grew up and then I, my family has a very strong belief that you lead by example, you know. And one of the one of their favorite stories to tell me was when I was younger was the preacher that got caught in the bar, you know, smoking a cigarette and having a beer with a, a, a girl sitting on his leg. And they, they the congregation questioned him, like, what the heck are you doing? And he said, and the preacher said, you do as I say, not as I do. And that, from my earliest childhood, that was a parable in my family. You don't lead that way. You lead by example. And so when I got on my grandmother's scales and I was almost 300 pounds, I was like, whoa, that's got stopped. And so I came back to the, to the office uh, about two counties over, Monday morning and I got a bunch of labs checked and I weighed on my scale and sure enough I was in the 290s man I was getting fat and so when my lab work came back my A1C was elevated my my insulin was elevated all my inflammatory markers were high my triglycerides were sky high and I was like dude not only do you look like you're pregnant you also are getting metabolically sick and so I thought well I can't have that right I, I can't be that fat doctor that walks into an exam room and proceeds to tell somebody they need to lose weight. That's, that's just not how I roll. Right. And so I had to fix this. And so what back then, in the first few years of my practice, I, I proudly and confidently recommended Weight Watchers to my patients and the American Diabetic Association diet and the American Heart Association diet. And so when I decided I'm going to lose weight, I did what I told my patients to do because I knew I'd been eating junk and I hadn't been exercising. So I started eating very low saturated fat, eating lots of whole grain, started jogging three, three or four times a week. And I'd reach out 
the thing in a month and I'd gain 10 more pounds. And it was at that point I said, okay. Up to that point, I had thought all my patients were secretly non-compliant because I would tell them, you just got to, you got to burn more than you eat, man. It's simple. Come on. What are you doing? Put down the Doritos and go for a walk. Everything will get better. But none of my patients were getting better. They were all getting fatter and sicker and I was having to add more medicine. And then it occurred to me after that month, you know, it, it's not my patient's fault. It's my fault because the idiotic advice I've been giving them doesn't work because I knew that I had been eating no bacon at all. I'd been eating whole wheat bread with the little seeds on top every meal. You know what I'm saying? I was eating tons yeah. of grains, tons of drinking skim milk because I grew up being a milk baby. And so I, when I played football in high school, I would drink a gallon of milk a day. And yep. uh, almost drank my grandmother out of house at home drinking milk a gallon at a time. And so then I switched to skim milk when I started wanting to lose weight. And like I said, I gained 10 more pounds. So I really had an epiphany. Dude, you're an idiot. Everything you've been telling your patients up to this point is wrong. It's not working. Not only did it not work for them, it didn't even work for you. And so that's when I had a real wake-up call. I had to, I had to figure out how to feed and care for a human being because I obviously did not know. Yeah, let's let's back up for a minute because I wanted to ask you this because this is something that I, I saw a lot of because I was a pharmaceutical rep. And what I saw a lot of, and I experienced this with my someone in my own family, my sister, my sister's a registered nurse. And I remember she told me she was going on a night shift and I remember seeing her and she was fit and trim. And then probably a couple of months later, she had gained a lot of weight. Is it the norm for people who are in medical school because of the, the strenuous program or being in medical school or being under that, I guess, a lot of stress during that period? Whereas my sisters, like I said, she's a nurse. Is it the norm for people in the medical establishment to be overweight just because of the odd hours, the not taking taking good care of themselves? I don't know if it's the norm, but it's much, much more common than it ever should be. Because I think all healthcare professionals should lead by example. You should look at them and go, "Wow, they look at they're healthy. Look at them. They're fit. They're toned. They're you know they're muscular." That's how a health professional should look. I mean, it would be it, it's the same exact thing. Went to your professor and you ask him a question about a college class, and he said, "Uh." I don't know. You're like, no, dude, you're a professor. You're supposed to be smart. And you found out your college professor was an idiot. That's the that's a perfect analogy for a fat nurse or a fat doctor. You're supposed to be a healthcare professional. You're supposed to know everything about how human beings should eat, how they should behave, how they should live, what they what they shouldn't take. They're fat. How does that make any sense? And so all these doctors have this cognitive dissonance when they look in the mirror. And they're like, well, I'm a special case. Well, it's okay. I'm going to start next. Well, I don't know. But what they're, what effectively they're doing is they're giving a miserable example to the patients whom they should be leading. I've heard somewhere, and I've, I've had people on for interviews, and I believe one of my guests said that many doctors die way before their patients. I don't know how true that is. Oh, yeah, but- that's totally true. The average lifespan for a doctor is probably 10 to 15 years less than the average U.S. citizen. Yeah, that's there's no doubt. And, and doctors have higher rates of, of suicide, of, 
of alcoholism, of drug abuse, and it, yeah, there's stress. There's no doubt there's, there's a stressful life. But it probably all comes back to the fact that you can imagine being a doctor is stressful. But when you're being a doctor and none of your patients are getting better, they all get sicker. You're not leading by example. You're not proud of yourself. You're not proud of what you're doing for your patients. You can imagine what a miserable life that is for most doctors. Mm-hmm. Trying to, to recommend the American Heart Association guidelines and the ADA guidelines. and Everybody's getting sicker and going on dialysis. And you had to add another pill that last visit. Now they lost a toe. Now they're blind. I mean, how depressing is that? Yeah, you, you see a lot of that. I remember seeing a lot of that. I remember seeing just an operation one time where I got a chance to stand by an operating room and I could not, I don't know how they deal with it because I could not deal with it myself and they have to see this every day. But I, I guess the question is, Dr. Barry, should we respect a doctor who comes into the room with you as a patient and that person is overweight and they're trying to tell you, hey, you need to get your blood work under control. You need to get your weight under control. How should we look at someone like that? Should we look at really transferring to another doctor? And when is it a good time? I guess I'm asking two questions here. When is it a good time for us to maybe transition to another doctor? Because people ask me that all the time. But I wanted to kind of hear it straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Oh, I think that's a great question. And all I can do is speak for myself and what patients have told me in the past. And I went into an exam room to see a little lady. And this was at the time I was in my 290s. And I, you know, she was overweight and she was a diabetic. And I said, now, you know, if you could just lose some weight, it would help your, your blood sugars. And, you know, women after a certain age, they'll just say whatever they, is on their mind. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know what I'm saying. And yes. she was about 80, 85, some, somewhere in there. And she just kind of chuckled a little bit. And I said, what? And she said, well, honey, it looks like your water's about to break. <laughs> and so do you think she had any respect for my opinion that she should lose five or ten pounds? No, she had no respect for me. She thought it was cute. She thought it was comical that I had told her. She needed to lose some weight. And that was that was one of the events. I was like, oh, no, I'm done with this. I am not going to be that doctor. I can't take that. I mean, I would be that doctor committing suicide in 20 years after uh, enough of those kind of comments. And so I don't think that your doctor needs to be a triathlete. I don't think they need to be Mr. Olympia. But I think they need to not be fat. Yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much a requirement. That'd be just like going to your college professor and you ask him a, a basic question about the course he's teaching. And he's like, I don't know. And you, you you talk to him and find out he's a moron. Would you take another class from him next semester? No, you, you, you're not going to learn anything from him. And so if you are going to a doctor who doesn't even value his own health or he, everybody values their health, right? He what he's talking about. Just like I didn't know what I was talking about like in the first few years of Class, uh, career. I didn't know. I thought you should eat more whole grains and drink skim milk, not eat bacon. I thought that was the end, but I was wrong. So yeah, I'm. My patients were disrespectful to me. At least that one little old lady, because she she basically helped make me who I am today. Because all all of my my childhood learning came back to me. All of those parables, all that the example, lead by example, lead by example. I thought, yeah, you, you ain't doing that, my friend. You ain't doing that at all, right? 
And so I couldn't be that doctor. And so she really motivated me, among other things, to fix that. And so if your doctor doesn't motivate you and lead by example, I think it's time to start looking for another doctor. And I think I'm pretty blunt about that in the book. Yeah, you are. And I think sometimes we need that message to pop up like that woman told you. We need that message to pop up. Oh, yeah. You you go against the group think, so to speak. And what I'm wondering is if you've received any flack from any of the medical associations, any other doctors saying, hey, you shouldn't be telling people this information. Have you received any of that? Oh, yeah. I've received flack multiple times over the years. And I'm enough of an iconoclast that I take that as a compliment. Because, you know, the, the status quo is to be a type 2 diabetic. The status quo is to be overweight. The status quo is to, is to be on dialysis by the time you're 65. So do I want to just follow the status quo? No. I'll happily take my lumps from the, from the state medical board or from the medical association. I'm, I'll ha- or, or censure from the insurance company because I'm ordering too much lab work. I'll happily carry that burden if I have to. Because I feel like what I'm doing is right. I feel like what I'm doing is correct. I feel like what I'm doing is proper. Your your wife is also involved in the medical community, too. I believe you said in the book she was a nurse as well. Yeah, she's a labor and delivery nurse. And so and then she's also very involved with with fitness motivation and, and all kinds of other things as well. She's very active. Did, did you was she always on board with you? Because I remember my sister and I because she was a registered nurse and I was doing what I was doing and learning more about how to eat, to live and things of that nature. I remember we had a tiff and we didn't speak for almost two years. And I was wondering if your wife was always on board with you or did you have to kind of pull her along to get her on board? What what happened there? No, she's always been on board with me. Nisha is a, is a godsend for me. She's one of the, the motivations for me every day. One of the things that saved me. She uh, does get a bit nervous when I start calling out the medical board and the American Diabetic Association for the, for the idiocy that they put out as guidelines. That does make her a bit nervous, and I think she'd love it if I toned that down a notch. But I don't really think a toned-down, meek message is what the U.S. needs right now. I think, I think they need somebody yelling at them and saying, hey, you're fat and you're sick, and everything that, that your doctor has told you to do, it hadn't worked. So maybe you should try something else. One thing I want to get into is from the book was the laws of human nature. And some of these things make so much sense because I think it was one thing in there where you said, if you tell a lie long enough, people will believe it. And I think that's the sentiment that people are under today, because I remember when I first started learning a lot of this stuff, because I was in the pharmaceutical industry and I believed that drugs were the end all to be all. But then when my, after my mom passed, I I really started questioning a lot of things and started to do my own research, do a lot of reading. And that's how I got here today of hosting a health and wellness podcast. But the first one was if you tell a lie long enough, people will believe that. And I think that's where we are with a lot of things right now. Like I said, especially with cholesterol and, you know, a lot of the different things. But I wanted you to kind of expand on that and, and give your insight on it. I tell I think that's absolutely correct and I think you're right I think that's where we are right now we're we're at, if you tell a lie long enough people will believe it and we're also at the echo of the lie and I'll, we'll talk about that one in a minute if we, if we can but yeah I mean and especially when a generation slips by and so now you're a, you're somebody in your your teens or your 20s or your 30s 
you got your mama, right? And she's telling you, you need to quit eating that bacon. You need to eat this whole wheat toast, right? Right. So not only are you hearing it from the media and you're hearing it from your doctor, you're hearing it from your mama. Now, what are you going to do with that? You, you, you going to tell your mama that she don't know what she's talking about? Cause I'm not, I wouldn't do that to my grandmother. That'd be dangerous for my health. And so, yeah, we're, the lie has been repeated so many times by so many authority figures in our life that we just accept it as self-evident when it's completely and totally false. Yeah. Another one is the only when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think that can go for a lot of different things. I think that that even spreads into the nutrition field because one person will tell you, hey, it's gluten. Another person will tell you, hey, it's this, because that's what they're specialized in. But expand on that as well, because I think all of these concepts that you explain in the book have brought us to kind of where we are today, especially when it's in the medical field, especially when it comes to surgeries, because most doctors are going to make more money off of surgery. So that's why they're going to guide you towards that. But explain out a little bit more about that. Yeah. So it, it, it depends on the specialty of the doctor. If you go see a family doctor or an internal medicine doctor, his hammer is that prescription pad. And so virtually Never will you go to your family doctor or your internal medicine doctor or your pediatrician because they're all they're all kind of the, trained the same. It's all about the medicine, right? So that's their hammer. And so if you go in with with a runny nose or you go in with a hurt toe or you go in with chest pain, you're going to leave with a prescription because that's his hammer. That's all he knows how to do, right? right. If you go to a surgeon's office, your odds of getting surgery are very very high. Now, obviously, family doctors and internal medicine doctors, they have morals, and so do surgeons. They're not going to just say every single person needs surgery, but if that's your hammer, then that's all you're going to see are nails, right? And so everybody you see, you're going to be trying to put them in the paradigm of what you were trained to do, because if you, if you can't put them into that paradigm, then you can't help them, and that makes you useless as a doctor, and what doctor wants to be useless? And so, yeah, and so if you go to a bariatric surgeon's office and you're morbidly obese, he's going to want to do gastric bypass. He's going to want to do a bariatric surgery on you. If you go to your family doctor's office with morbid obesity, he's going to want to give you a weight loss pill and then a pill for your diabetes and a pill for your high blood pressure. You see my point? If you go to a dietitian, they're going to try to tell you to eat less bacon and eat more whole grain bread because that's their hammer. That's all they know how to use. Never will a dietitian recommend you have bariatric surgery because that makes them useless. They can't help you. And nobody wants to be useless. It's human nature. And that's why I, I try to explain to everybody there's no medical conspiracy. I mean, you're a drug rep. You know this. Mm-hmm. If, after you go to a doctor's office and you detail him about that drug, what, what are the odds that he's going to write that drug next time he sees a patient with that? Uh, very, it's very likely. Very likely, but way over 50%. And that's why drug companies send drug reps is because they know that puts their drug top of mind. And so next time he has that situation, that drug becomes his hammer. And he can't think of anything else except that new drug that you just told him about when you took him those jelly donuts, preferably lemon. (laughs) Or I had a short skirt on. but (laughs) Exactly (laughs) right. You got it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. 
the the next one is, and I think these are important concepts for everybody to understand because a lot of times when when I was reading reading your book, it brought them back to me because sometimes I just don't think about them. And the other one is association isn't causation. Explain a little bit more about that. Yeah, and so this is something that every single doctor, nurse, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, physical therapist, naturopath, every one of these guys ought to be able to recite this from memory. But most of them don't get it. They may have been taught it, but they forgot it. And that is association does not show causation. And what that means is, is just because something is associated with another thing, it doesn't mean that that thing caused the other thing. And the example I use in the book is, is how you can use epidemiological studies to seemingly prove things when they don't really prove anything at all. The one, I think the example I used was, was there was a study done that every time a Nicolas Cage movie would, would come out as a premiere, the incidence of home swimming pool drownings would skyrocket. And that's, I mean, you can put the graph over the other graph and they line up perfectly. But does anybody listening really think that it was Nicolas Cage's, it was his, his fault? I mean, is he a murderer? Is, is he the reason these people were drowning? No, it was just an association. It doesn't prove anything. It's a coincidence. But if you put the curves on top of each other, they line up perfectly. And so many times in medicine, you know, as a drug rep, you could take an, an association study in and show a doctor, and they'd write that drug left and right because in their mind, they saw causation on your graph. Even though your graph didn't show any causation whatsoever, the medication had nothing to do with the, the outcome. The curves just overlapped. And that's a, you, you, we quickly get into statistical and epidemiological concepts when you start talking about this stuff. But it's kind of like uh, a good practical example would be if somebody said, you know, every time I see a house that's on fire, there are firemen in the yard. I'll bet those damn firemen are the cause of those fires. You see, there, there is an association. You're highly likely to see a firefighter in the yard of a house that's on fire, aren't you? Yep. But does that mean the, the firefighters caused that? Of course not. They're there to put it out. But if you didn't know better, you would see that association. And your our, our, our human brain tries to look for causation all the time because that's how come we rule the world is because our brains work so well. But now that we're in this modern society, some of those things, those tools that used to work very well for us 5,000 years ago, they don't work so well because drug reps and other people like that can use them against us. And so you show me a, an association study and I see causation, then I start writing your prescription. Right. And I think that's why a lot of we're where we are with a lot of things. I think in, in, the, in the book also you mentioned Ansel Keys and you also mentioned uh, Denise Menger's book and I had Denise on and we discussed that whole thing of how Ansel Keys came up with the seven country study and the whole cholesterol and the fat thing and how he neglected to put, you know, certain things in. And so it, it just makes a whole lot of sense. Now, this last one was big for me because this can go over any genre, not just doctors, but I think it, it kind of falls over to anybody who's got a job, a, a well paying job and they want to keep that job. And you said when your income depends on believing a certain thing, you tend to believe it. And I saw that a lot when I called on, on doctors really just trying to, trying to change their prescribing behavior was one of the biggest things that drug reps work on. And it would take a lot of work to change someone. If they were embedded in a specific drug, 
It would take a lot of work to get that person to see things a little bit differently. You would have to, you know, throw studies and do all kinds of things. And that was because I found out that a lot of these guys were buddy buddy with some of the other drug reps or some of the drug companies. Um, We used to do what we call per diem, where doctors would come in and speak for us on our drug to convince other doctors to do to start prescribing a drug. But like, like I said, that is big over any genre. I think that we tend to not want to go against the grain if our income depends on it. Oh, that's absolutely right. And and you're right. All of these laws of human nature that I talk about in the book, they apply to every profession and they reply to every human being. We're all susceptible to these laws of human nature and these, these errors in, in ways of thinking. But my point in the book is that doctors should know better. They should be trained better. They should not fall for a drug rep in a short skirt and start prescribing that drug. That has obviously no health benefit to that patient that they just wrote that drug for. And so, so many doctors, I mean, okay, for example, there are doctors right now who are well-versed in the ketogenic way of eating, right? Right. They eat it it themselves. But do they recommend it to their patients? No. Why not? because it's not standard of care. And if, if somebody reports them to the medical board for recommending that diet, they could they could, they could could be uh, reprimanded. They could be fined. They could have their license put on probation because they're not following the standard of care or the community standard. And so if, even though they know keto is right, or paleo, or ancestral, or primal, or carnivore, whichever one you want to say, they know in their heart that's right, that that's what they should tell this patient but they don't do it because their income could be in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. And that, and so you immediately think, well, that doctor's dishonest. He's, 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 a, he's a scoundrel. No, he's just a human being. You would yeah. do the same thing if your job depended on it. How many examples have we seen in history and on, on you know documentaries where people look the other way because their income depended on them looking the other way? But it's different for doctors, in my opinion. It's different because we took an oath. We took an oath and we hopefully meant that. And yet you're going to look the other way and you're going to let the drug rep with the, with the lemon donuts and, and, and the skirt, you're going to let that literally dictate your practice and you're not even going to prescribe what you know is the most powerful thing you could prescribe, which is a proper diet for that patient. Yeah, It's, it's unforgivable lo- and it, it triggers me and I'm sorry, but yeah. I mean, you know, if, yeah. you're, if you're a hairdresser and you tell somebody, oh, it's, you know, you should eat more whole grain, that's fine. You, you get a right to your opinion. You, you live here. You can say whatever you want, and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're a licensed professional who's under oath, it is your job to stand up against the powers that be if that's what's right for your patient. It is your job to throw your body on the gears if that's what's right for your patient. And it, it, it really triggers me that doctors, they literally have no courage. They have no gumption. They'll just look the other way to protect that income. Yeah, you see so many stories in the past where people have kind of gone against the grain in the medical community and they were like just blacklisted. You know, yeah. They were never able to make any money. So I can see the fear there. But you're a doctor. Does the medical boards give you any type of wiggle, wiggle room? Or is, if you say, hey, eat more bacon to my patients, are you looking to be reprimanded for that? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm clearly not uh, recommending the standard of care for my patients. And uh, I was on the, the low-carb 
cruise. I don't know if you know Jimmy Moore or not, but I, I was know, on, yeah, on his, I know Jimmy. Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, I was on his cruise, <laughs> and I and I told I, I, was, I was a speaker, and I I said I wish the medical board would come after me and make me the next Gary Fett or make me the next Tim Notes, make me the U.S. Tim Notes. Please do that. And I thought Nisha was going to pass out. She got very pale. She was like, please, please stop saying that. <laughs> but I mean, I, I'm sorry, but the truth has to be said out loud, even if it takes the high. Let's get into some of these. I call them myths. And I think that they're not myths. They're just like these things that have been told us so long that we start believing them. Right. And um, one of the things that you, you talk about is the, the fat thing. We still have people out here who believe that if they eat fat, it's going to make them fat. Let's talk right. about that. Right. And if your hairdresser tells you that, then that is a myth. If your mama tells you that, then that is a myth. But if your doctor tells you that or your nutritionist or your dietitian tells you that, then in my estimation, that's a big fat lie because they are sworn. To, to know the truth and to search diligently for the truth. And if they're not doing that, then they're not upholding their oath. And that makes everything they do a lie. And that's why I named the book what I named it instead of Medical Myths. Because that's I was going to go with the publishing house and they wanted me to change the name. And I'm like, nope, I'll self-publish. Because these are lies and this mm -hmm. needs to stop. And so the fat lie, as you know, started with a, a huge study by Ansel Keys. He was a vegetarian. And he thought that animal products were bad for, we, he thought we shouldn't eat them for whatever reason. And so the, the, another big thing, another human uh, law, law of na human nature that I didn't discuss in the book is bias. We all have biases. I have biases. You have biases. We all do. But the way you set up your research should protect your results from your bias. That's the definition of being a good scientist, right? Is you, you're, you're smart enough to know that you don't know everything, first of all. And secondly, you're biased. You think you know things and you believe things that may or may not be true. But if you're a good scientist, you set your research study up to protect the results from your own opinions. You're not trying to prove your opinion is right. This is not a political campaign, but that's how Ansel Keys kind of ran his research was I'm right and I'm going to prove I'm right and you're going to believe I'm right. And that's the end of it. And so he was very successful. He was a very, very uh, powerful personality. And he, and he also he came along at the perfect time in U.S. history <clears throat> for something like this to occur. And so he, he, he convinced the world that saturated fat led to heart disease. And he, he did it. He pulled it off. And for the last 50 years, we've all been living under this myth or this lie that if you eat fat, you'll get fat. And if you eat fat, it increases your risk of a heart attack. None of that's true, but we, but so many of us still believe that because that's the lie that we've heard repeated so many times. Let's rewind a bit because you mentioned research. And one thing that kind of blew the lid off everything for me is when I was rep, a rep and I would go in with these research papers. And obviously, I represented antibiotics. And so when I would go in and talk to a doctor about antibiotics, what I would do, I would be on with my research paper and say, hey, look, doc, our, our antibiotic is more safe, safe, more safe uh, and efficacious antibiotic than my competitor. What I didn't realize until I got out of the industry was my competitor was coming in with the same research saying that his drug or her drug right. was better than my drug. Um, and I don't think that people know that. 
But on a deeper level, when it comes to this research, are doctors actually reading the latest research or are they taking shortcuts when it comes to learning? And because I remember you mentioned in your book that we all take shortcuts. Are doctors taking these shortcuts and not keeping up to date with the latest research that's out there? Oh, absolutely. Without doubt. I tried so hard my first three or four years to read all the literature, all the latest research. But, you know, as, as a previous drug rep, I mean, the, the literature doubles every, I think it's every eight months now, the amount of, of research out there doubles. No human can keep up with all that. And so doctors have to pick and choose. I'm going to read that study, but I'm just going to read the summary of this study, and I'm not even going to worry about that study. Part of that, it has to be that way because you don't have enough hours in the day to read all the research. But anytime a doctor takes a, a research study that was funded by a pharmaceutical house and handed to him by the pharmaceutical rep, and he makes any clinical decision based on that research, he, that's it. He's done. He, that, that, that is the definition of laziness. That's the definition of sloth. That's, I mean, the, I can't even think of strong enough words that you probably won't be using on your podcast to describe that behavior. That is egregious. It's malpractice in my opinion. But doctors do it every day because they're busy. They got bills to pay. They got a family at home. They got all these things tugging at them. And so they give up on the one thing that they took an oath. You talk about antibiotics in your book, and it's very interesting what your insight was. But I, I, what I always experienced when I was in the industry was doctors would just give people antibiotics because they felt like, hey, I'm sick. I have this really bad cold. And they would just bow under the pressure to give the patient antibiotic just because they, the patient said, this, this is what I need. Have you ever felt that pressure? And have you ever just turned somebody down and say, hey, you know what? This might be a viral infection. Let's play it out. Let's, let's see it play out before I prescribe anything. Absolutely. Every, every primary care doctor has that pressure put on them on a daily basis. And the worst of all is when you've got a mother with a sick child and she wants, she brought that child to you for you to fix her child and she paid her copay and she's probably got a high deductible. So she's going to have to pay the bill when it comes. And you, you can see quickly how a doctor is put under the gun. He, he feels like, man, I better, I better prescribe something. Or this mom will never come back. She's going to be upset with me. She'll tell everybody all over town, well, Dr. Barry didn't do nothing for little Jimmy. He just had to suffer for three days or five days or seven days. But, yeah, and so I, I've succumbed to that before. I admit that readily. Every doctor has. But very early in my career, I thought of a strategy. And if any doctors or, or PAs or NPs are listening, you can use this strategy. Tell the mom, hey, I think this is a virus. Because your kid's got a low-grade temp, he's got a runny nose, he's coughing, he doesn't feel good, but he's still eating and drinking, and he's still, you know, he's, he's active. I'm going to write you a prescription for antibiotics, but I don't think your child needs it. Save your copay. See how I turned it to the money right there? Mm -hmm. Save your copay. Put this in your purse, and in 48 hours, if your child's no better, then go get the antibiotic fill. And mothers love that because I used my hammer. I gave them that prescription, right? And they've got something that they can use to fix their child. But I also gave them the mental capacity to, to think about this and to go, well, yeah, okay, I'll wait. I'll wait till in the morning. 
And if he's not better, I'll get it then. And then if he's not no worse in the morning, she might think, well, okay, I'll wait another day. And if he's no better, then I'll get the antibiotic. And so my rate of antibiotic prescription writing was probably just as high as any other doctor. But the rate at which mothers and, and patients filled my antibiotic was drastically lower because I gave them that out. I gave them that, that heads up. Hey, this is probably viral. These antibiotics are not going to help a bit, and they might even cause harm. So wait 48 hours before you fill this. That way you don't waste a copay for nothing, and you don't give your child medication that they may not even need at all. And and so you kind of empower mothers with that, or even just patients, grown-ups. You give them the power to make that decision. Do I need to spend this 35 bucks on this antibiotic, or do I need to just tough it out? And, and so a large majority of the time, they would tough it out. And three to seven days later, guess what? They were better without the antibiotic. And not only did they not take the antibiotic that time, but the next time they caught an upper respiratory infection, they remembered what I said, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, I'm not even going to go to the doctor. I'm going to give this three days. And then if I'm no better, I'll go to the doctor. And so, yeah, it's hurt me financially telling people that over the years, but I'm happy to suffer that because untold numbers of antibiotics did not get administered in my name because of that strategy. And I think, I think people just don't realize that even though antibiotics are out there and they, they need them for a cold or something like a very bad cold, that there's a danger associated with that as well. Right. right? Absolutely. And that's what no, no drug rep ever wants to talk about and no doctor ever wants to talk about that. But the more, I found that the more I talked about the potential side effects, the less often the antibiotic got filled. And make no mistake, sometimes antibiotics are life-saving chemicals. There's no doubt. If you have a severe sinus infection that's threatening to cross the, the blood-brain barrier, you need an antibiotic right now. If you have an ear infection that's in danger of rupturing the eardrum and causing permanent hearing loss, you need an antibiotic right now. If you have strep throat, and it could lead to kidney damage, you need an antibiotic right now. But for so many upper respiratory infections, people take 5, 7, 14 days of an antibiotic that they absolutely don't need at all, and it can lead to, to, you know, rarely devastating side effects. But even if there are no seeming side effects, you're still altering your gut bacteria drastically. Mm -hmm. And there are association studies showing that the more antibiotics a kid has taken, the, the worse their gut symptoms are, the more likely they are to have autoimmune diseases later in life. And those are association studies. They don't prove anything, but they, they're very tightly associated that the more antibiotics a child has consumed, the more likely they are to have chronic illness as an adult. Yeah, let's, let's jump back into some more of these lives because I want to even relay these before you know, the podcast ends. And I think these are the ones that are, are very prevalent. We talked about fat. The next one is cholesterol, because I know a lot of people out there are still worrying about lowering their cholesterol. And I remember I heard I interviewed Jimmy Moore and this changed my mind about cholesterol. He has a book, uh, Cholesterol Clarity. He wrote a couple of years ago and I had him on. But is there a danger for us when we have high cholesterol and do we immediately need to go, go to a doctor and get a statin drug? No, absolutely not. And and so that's. That's one thing, but the sad part of this is that if any doctor has been doing his reading over the last decade, he knew that 10 years ago. We've known for a decade that total cholesterol 
is not a marker for increased risk of heart attack and stroke. It's been known for a decade, but doctors still every day to this day write statin drugs, Zocor, Lipitor, Crestor, for somebody who's got a total cholesterol that's a few points high. And it's been shown in huge, huge, meaningful research studies that total cholesterol has nothing to do with your risk of heart attack and stroke. And actually, the big studies, when you crunch the numbers, they show that women never need a statin. No matter, the higher their cholesterol is, the longer they live. The higher a woman's cholesterol is, the less likely she is to die from any cause. And so it makes you just, it just makes it makes you speechless that there there are still doctors out there right now in 2018 saying, "Oh, your total cholesterol's 203. I'm going to give you some Crestor and get that down." But if you're giving that Crestor to a woman, you're probably shortening her life. You're not helping her in any way. All the research you may know this was done on old white guys and old white guys who had had a heart attack previously. Mm-hmm. Now that population older white guys who've had a previous heart attack, they might actually benefit a little bit from a statin. But there is no other population that's ever been shown to benefit from a statin prescription. No other, no no woman, no young man. There are, there are children getting Crestor prescriptions now for high cholesterol when all you got to do is fix their diet and it all goes back to normal. Are they still prescribing Lipitor? Yeah, Lipitor, Zocor, oh, Crestor. Man, I can't believe that because yeah. I, I left the industry, uh, Dr. B, in 2002. And I remember just before leaving the industry, because as a drug rep, you get to hear about all this stuff before it actually gets out on the street. And I remember at that time, they were talking about the side effects of Lipitor. So I can't believe they're, they're still prescribing it. Every day. Every day. Wow. And Z- Zocor and Lipitor and Pravastatin, they're all generic now. So most of the really good doctors, and I say good with air quotes, all the good cardiologists, they're using Crestor now because it's still a name brand. And so that, that's, that makes it sound like it, it's better because, you know, who wants it? Who wants generic? Nobody wants generic. They want a name brand. But obviously name brands, you know this as well as anybody, they're no better than generics. There's no difference whatsoever. Federal law mandates that they have to be within what, two and a half percent. Of the of the name brand, or you can't even put a generic on the market. But yeah, every day people are writing statins for minimally elevated total cholesterol. Now they all, they really like to talk about LDL cholesterol now because they think that they can hang their hat on that. Problem is, it's also been shown in huge studies to be a terrible predictor of heart attack and stroke. And so we can talk about the actual predictors if you want to, but just just suffice it to say. If your total cholesterol is high, that does not mean you're at increased risk for a heart attack. It does not mean that at all. That has never, ever been proven. I believe it's what it's a homo. You can check your homocysteine levels. So. Yeah, you want to look for you want to look for at your triglycerides. You want to look at your HDL. You want to look at your blood sugar. You want to look at your markers for inflammation. You want to look at your waist to height ratio. If you're, if you've got central fat, you know, belly fat, if uh-huh. you've got high triglycerides, if you've got low HDL, if you've got high blood pressure, if you've got high cholesterol or uh, glucose, you are at risk for a heart attack and stroke. Those have been proven. Those are the five, the five risk factors for metabolic syndrome. That's a real thing. And so if you're, if your blood sugar is even a little high, you're at increased risk for heart attack and stroke. If your blood pressure is a little bit high, you're at increased risk. 
You see what I'm saying? Those yes. things have been proven in huge research studies to actually be risk factors. Homocysteine is another one. Uh, so there's all these different markers that have been proven. There's no doubt that they are risk factors. But every day a doctor will look at somebody who has a very high HDL, which is good, and a very low triglycerides, which is good. But they've got their, their total cholesterol is three points high, so they put them on staff. It's It's just lunacy. Let's get into two more. I didn't want to give your whole book away because the book is really good, really good reading. I think everybody should read, especially those people who are just trying to take care of their health or just trying to take control of their health. It's a really good book. But you just you discuss two other myths in here. One is milk, because I think that we as a culture, you mentioned this early in the interview, how you used to drink milk as a culture. We've been taught that we should drink milk for strong bones and all this stuff. And the other thing that just kind of came onto a horizon, I think within the last maybe 10 years or so, the last decade, is just wheat. Because I know myself, I discovered that I was gluten sensitive yes. about seven, eight years ago, and I haven't touched a piece of bread since. But but discuss those two things and, and kind of give the audience a, a rundown of why they might want to consider reconsider drinking milk and why they might reconsider eating a wheat product. Yeah, absolutely. So first, let's talk about milk. Milk, as it comes from the breast or from the udder, is not a liquid. Everybody thinks it's just a liquid. It is a literal living tissue. There are still components of human breast milk and of cow milk and of goat milk that we don't even know what they are or what they're for. We found a component in milk, uh, in, in breast milk years ago, and it's like, why is that even in there? Infants can't even digest that. And so for years, doctors just thought the human body must be stupid. It's just putting stuff in the breast milk that, that you know, human beings can't even use. Well, it turns out that's food for our, our gut bacteria. And the gut bacteria can use that and break it down and turn it into short-chain fatty acids, which the baby can then use for energy. And so there's all these things about milk that when you start reading about milk, and, and Denise Minger, she's a great resource if anybody wants to know about this. But another thing is that I was taught in med school and residency that human beings, there is no vitamin D in, in human breast milk. And so if a woman is going to exclusively breastfeed, and, and this is actually in the book, then you have to give the baby vitamin D drops or the ba baby will get rickets. Doctors are taught that, or they were, you know, 10 years ago, and I'm sure they still are. And, you're, and so you should, your first question, my first question as a, as a intern, a first-year resident, I was like, wait, what? So 10,000 years ago, how did we not all get rickets and break a femur and die? If that's true, that can't be true. But I was busy. I was an intern. I didn't have time to sleep, much less to think. And so I just filed that away for later use and comes to find out if you give a woman enough vitamin D, either from sunlight or as a supplement, she puts plenty of vitamin D in her breast milk. But she, she's got to have the vitamin D in order to give it to her baby. And so all those doctors I trained with thought you had to give a baby who's exclusively breastfed vitamin D drops or the baby would get rickets. Now, <laughs> if that's not superstition, I don't know what is because this has been disproven as just ignorance. But there are still doctors out there who prescribe the vitamin D drops instead of telling the mom, hey, just take some vitamin D and go lay out in the sun and you'll have plenty of vitamin D for your baby. So now back to milk being an excellent source of calcium. So the calcium in milk is very poorly absorbed. You can get much more bioabsorbable calcium from eating leafy green vegetables, right? And so if, if you think you're giving 
your child or your daughter or your mom or your mother milk as a source of calcium, you are wasting your time and money. Okay. Also, milk is a, a supposedly a great source of vitamin D, but the vitamin D that's in cow milk is vitamin D2, which is very, they add that to the, to the cow milk because cows don't get to play out in the sun and graze on grass anymore. They have to stay in the feedlot and eat corn and, and wheat. And so they don't have any vitamin D in their breast milk either. So the vitamin D that you think you're getting from the cow's milk is not even being absorbed. There are much better sources of calcium. There are much better sources of vitamin D than cow's milk. And I tell my patients all the time, if you want to gain weight as fast as you possibly can, then drink lots of milk because that's why cows give milk to their calves. Most cows gain anywhere from 700 to 1,200 pounds the first year of life. What makes them gain so much weight? It's the milk. Plus, you're also drinking the breast milk of another animal. And when you say it like that, it makes it sound kind of gross. And so I think human milk is perfect for baby humans. But I don't think any milk is appropriate for a grown human. I think we all have some degree of lactose intolerance. Some some um, people have a much worse time drinking milk, and they just can't drink it or they'll suffer miserably. Other people, it seems like they can drink it. Like I said earlier, I used to drink a gallon of milk a day. But you know what else I had in, in high school? I had severe pustular acne. I had dandruff. I had chronic, chronic allergic rhinitis my entire high school career. I had no idea it was from the milk. My doctor didn't know. But when I went to college and I, I, I couldn't have a fridge in my dorm and I couldn't afford milk because I was broke as a joke, I drank, you know, Diet Coke or whatever. All my allergies went away. My dandruff got better. My acne cleared up. And I'm like, I don't know what just happened, but I guess I'm a grown man now. So all that went away. It was the milk. As soon as I stopped drinking milk, all those things went away. And so to think that that the milk from another animal, the breast milk from a cow, is, is nutritious for your human baby, it only makes sense if you've seen a thousand television commercials and you've had your doctor recommend it to you. Otherwise, that would make no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it's just like you, you keep seeing that over and over again. Like you said, a lie told, told long enough, we'll start to believe it. Right. We'll believe it over and over again. But going back to, I think we were talking, want to talk about wheat as well, because I think that's a big one too, that a lot of people are still eating, you know, he, eating the wheat and they don't realize. I have a lot of friends that I, I can tell you just from my, my experience. Um, I played basketball for a number of years and stopped. And I remember after I quit playing, I just had all kinds of problems with my knees. And it wasn't until I was listening to a podcast. I'm sure you're familiar with, um, uh, William Davis. Sure. Uh, Wheat Belly. And I listened yes. to his podcast. Uh, as he was on Sean Croxton's show many years ago. And I decided to give it seven days. I cut out wheat for seven days. And after that seven days, my arthritis in my knees was gone. And that convinced me that something was wrong with the wheat. And I've never gone back after that. Same, same exact story with me. Uh, I told you when, when I was trying to lose that weight and not break 300 pounds, I was eating lots of whole wheat and I was trying to jog and my joints were killing me. And I thought it was because I wasn't used to jogging, right? Mm -hmm. But then when I, when I found the, the primal blueprint and when I found wheat belly and when I found the Atkins diet revolution and I found the paleo diet, right? By Lauren Cordain, that's, those were kind of the books that woke me up and said, dude, you don't know anything about 
feeding a human body. You don't know anything. You weren't taught anything useful in medical school whatsoever in your little half semester class. And so I, I got all the grains out of my diet and immediately I could play out in the yard with the kids like a kid again. My joints didn't hurt me. I wasn't stiff. I had more energy. Everything got better when I got the grains out of my diet. And let's go a step further than wheat. Let's not just stop with wheat. All grains have proteins in them that are put there by the wheat to dissuade animals from eating the seeds. Grain wants to reproduce just like every other species on the planet. And if you eat their seeds and crush them up, then they're not going to grow into new wheat or new oats or new corn or whatever. And so every grain, every grass puts poison basically in its seeds. And if you eat that, you may not feel acutely poisoned. Some people will. If you have if you have celiac brew, you'll feel acutely poisoned, right? But if you have a less severe reaction to that, it may only be joint stiffness and pain. It may only be allergic rhinitis. It may only be dandruff. It may only be heartburn. But when you get all the grains out of your diet, be prepared to feel about 10 to 15 years younger because that's the only thing I can compare it to. I felt like I was a, a, a college senior again and could run for hours without stopping when I got the grains and the liquid dairy out of my diet. Yeah, I, I, I experienced the same exact thing. Uh, we're coming up on time now, and I want to get you out on time. I know you have a family, but I would just want to ask you this question. I know the answer, but I wanted the audience to, to hear it because I think that a lot of times what we do is we depend on and I've seen this in my family. I've seen this across the board with a lot of people. It's like we live a life up until 40 years old. And then at 40, we think that our lives are over. We're just supposed to succumb to gaining weight, not being able to have all of our mobility. But and then we start depending on drugs to kind of keep us sane, so to speak. Right. But how much. And you might have said this early in the interview, but how much training did you get on nutrition when you were in medical school? So we got one half semester of nutri a, a dedicated nutrition class uh, the first year of med school. And so for half the semester, we had behavioral science and the other half of the semester, we had nutrition. The entirety of all my medical school notes and textbooks, you might be imagining this big, thick stack of notes. But the entire, everything I was taught on nutrition, I could hold between thumb pinky of my right hand easily without dropping anything. It was that little. It was nothing. It was, it was, it was trivial. And so, yeah, the average doctor, unless he starts learning after medical school, knows nothing about human nutrition. That's absolutely true. Yeah. My last question is you kind of went outside of the realm and did your own studying. How important is that for doctors to kind of go out of what they're there every day to get uncomfortable and really start researching on their own? Because you said you discovered the primal paleo diet, which is I can't I guess that's what you're using to eat by now. But how important is it for doctors to get out of that comfort zone and just start looking somewhere else for that nutrition information that they didn't get in medical school? It's vital. It's mandatory. If you, if you're a, if you're a provider and you think of yourself as a scientist or as an intellectual or even as a professional, it's vital that you read widely and deeply, not just in your particular specialty. But I mean, what's more basic than 
the food that we should eat. If you if you don't know anything about nutrition, then how can you know anything about anything else? Because that is the bedrock of human health. If you don't eat the right diet, then there's not enough pills at the pharmacy to make you healthy, right? And so if any professional, whether you're a dietitian, nutritionist, provider, any of that, if you don't have a, a, a deep, deep understanding and a deep reading and thinking about human nutrition, then you're doing your patients a disservice and you should probably find another career. Dr. Barry, it's been a good time interviewing you. Your book is Lies My Doctor Told Me. I got the book off Kindle. For those of you out there who are listening, you can go to Kindle. I like reading by Kindle, but I also like real books too. But sometimes Kindle is just a little bit more efficient for me. But again, thank you, Dr. Barry, for being on Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm not sure if you have a website. If you do, can you let us know what website? And I've seen you on YouTube as well. So if people want to see your your YouTube videos, can you mention your, your YouTube channel is? Yeah, I do most of my work on YouTube and Facebook. Mm-hmm. I have a Facebook page and a YouTube channel. And if you'll just search Dr. Barry, I'm going to be the, the first hit. And then I've got probably over a hundred hours of video now on Facebook and on the Facebook page and on uh, uh, YouTube. I also have an Instagram channel and I've got several different, uh, I don't know if you know about IGTV, but you can do longer form videos on Instagram now. I got an Instagram account and I've got a lot of video and a lot of stuff in my feed. So I'm always trying to wake people up and help people understand that if your diet isn't right, nothing else is going to be right. And so I love doing what I do. You may can tell that. But uh, and I won't ever stop. And, and I welcome anybody to question me, ask me questions. If you don't think I'm right, call me out because I actually like that because that helps me learn as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, a lot of times when you get called out on stuff, it, it makes you concentrate a little bit more. But yep. Dr. Barry, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate your time. It's my pleasure. I've had a great time.